0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And a big welcome to all of you, especially any of you who are here for the first time, whether you're online or listening at a later time on Dharma Seed or on our YouTube channel. My name's Mark Nunberg. I'm one of the guiding teachers here at the Center. Common Ground is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. We started in 1993. So that's kind of amazing. And if you don't know, we not only, besides this building, beautiful building here in South Minneapolis, we have a small retreat center out in Western Wisconsin, about 83 miles out of town. We have programs there. I Patrice will be leading, I think it's full now, but a loving kindness retreat in a week or two. And there's another practice period being uh, set up for the 17th through the 20th. And if any of you would like to get out there, I think there's spots still for that practice period, 17th through the 20th of August, then several in September and several in October too, opportunities to get out to the retreat center. And all of this, you know, I try to mention at least once a month, usually at the end of the month, all of this happens just because in different ways, all the people in the community do their best to come into a relationship together. And you know, this doesn't just happen. People volunteer, people send their loving wishes, people contribute money. And uh, the idea that we've been doing these last 30 years is just to invite people to appreciate Whatever it is you get from being part of the community, having these teachings and these places where you can practice available, really let it land as a gift that's really given from the community, right? The fact that we have this building, we don't have debt, we have the retreat center, we don't have any debt, is because of all the generosity from the past. And it's actually not so easy to let that land like as a free gift, no strings attached, because that's... That's how we, you know, the whole community operates. So then, if you feel moved to give back, volunteer your time, contribute money, then let that be a natural movement because it makes you happy, not because you're guilty or something like that. And, you know, that's the way our mind always wants to frame it. Oh, I received, I should probably give something back. It's not like that's a bad attitude, but there might be a more beautiful attitude you can cultivate not just in your relationship to Common Ground Meditation Center, but in all of our relationships, you know, more of this beautiful circle of repro- repro- reciprocity, there we go, <laughs> you know, where there's a giving, a free giving and receiving, and the aftertaste is we feel good about it, like we're not haunted by this relationship because we've given too much, or it felt like a big mistake, or we didn't contribute anything or in this you know interpersonal relationship we really haven't been showing up and listening and it haunts us. So we just listen to our heart what for each of us because you know our situations are di- different. some people don't really have any money to get or have any time to offer right but there's still a way to be in that circle even if you don't have time or money to offer and it's really just about the integrity of the relationship. You know, initially, if you're here just for the first few times, just keep it an open question. But if you've been coming for a while, then ask yourself, well, like, what does this relationship feel like for me? Does it leave a good taste? Okay. Is, it, is it something in my heart, in my mind, that um, really contributes to my well-being, this relationship? And again, not just your relationship to Comgo, but... We want to be reflective about all of our relationships in our lives. And of course, if you have any questions about how this works, I think there's still some letters from our treasurer sitting on the shelf under the bulletin board there, and uh, you could just contact the center. Again, we don't tell people how to contribute suggested donations or anything like that because we don't know your situation. People just need to experiment, see what makes you happy. What way of being in relationship makes you happy? So I've been talking this summer about the healing and liberating of facts or possibilities, potential of awareness. And, uh, you know, it's really about this question because, like I mentioned, you know, we have this building nowadays. There are a lot of infrastructure in organizations around awareness. I mean, it's kind of weird. When you think about it, because it's like, what's the big deal about awareness? I thought I was already aware. (laughs) Why do we need a center, you know, a Buddhist meditation center that teaches present moment awareness? So it's okay to have that skepticism or that curiosity, like, what's the big deal here? The important thing, though, is to check it out. You know, people have been making a big deal about it for a long time. Maybe I should check it out. Like even in the sit, you know, I don't want to plead with myself or plead with the other people in the room, but it's like this is something we can check out for ourselves, what the big deal is. Like what happens when I remember to recognize awareness and I keep remembering to recognize awareness? How does my life change? How do I navigate all the twists and turns of my life when I've been valuing present moment awareness as opposed to when I'm not valuing present moment awareness? Does it actually contribute to my well-being and the well-being of those around me? And again, this is something, this takes a little bit more time, but we can check this out. One thing I think, I hope is pretty clear right away is, I don't think it does any harm, (laughs) you know. It's not like, you know, in The Matrix, some of you saw that movie, they're asking to take a pill. <laughs> the red one or the blue one. When and I recently re-watched the first Matrix movie. And uh, it's, there's nothing dangerous about getting curious about being present with our experience. And the other thing is, it makes a lot of logical sense that if we have a life, we'd want to be present for it. It doesn't make sense. I always joke about this, like, that somebody would write a book, a self-help book, you know, what the deal is. You got your life, how to be happy in your life, don't be there. You know, be distracted. Do whatever you can to not be aware of what's happening, and that would be your ticket to happiness. I mean, it's, people laugh because clearly that can't be the way. But in a lot of ways, because it sells, that's how our, our economy runs, right? Things are being dangled and here you can get absorbed in this, you can get absorbed in that, you can get lost over here, you can get addicted to this and that, and it's never ending because having been distracted much of the time, then whenever we, the circumstances, the supporting conditions conspire to Um, cause the mind to be awake present we often feel what we've been avoiding feeling which then triggers like get me the hell out of here (laughs) you know where can I absorb we open up I mean this is the thing about our phones we open them up it's like very quickly we can get lost in the content of whatever social media so we have to be told, you know, that it's not always pretty and at times it's really unpleasant to be present. But hiding from the unpleasantness, denying the unpleasantness, repressing, suppressing the unpleasantness of what's moving around us and in us doesn't really work in the long run. It kind of works in the short run which is why we're so addicted to distraction. It kind of works. But what we don't catch when we depend on distraction is the building of that stress, the tightness of, of being dependent in need of distractions. There's very little that is as unnerving as feeling very clearly the need for distraction and not finding anything and we start doing we catch ourselves doing like watching things we would never admit to watching because we need a distraction or absorbing into having conversations with people that we know are inane and not productive in any way but there we are because we're afraid of the alternative which is what? What's what's so scary about the alternative? it's just Feeling what we're already feeling, being with what's already here. It's not like dropping distraction is going to make more there. It's just going to create the space where we're likely to be feeling and noticing what's already there in our lives, moving. You know, because fundamentally we're sensitive creatures. We see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we sense the touches, and we sense mental activity, right? So we sense the world in only these six ways, mental activity, and through the five uh, sensitivities of the body, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and the skin. So we sense our world in this way and we have this capacity as humans, especially, and maybe animals, to some, other animals to some degree, to get lost in our mental constructions in a way that makes us oblivious to the exposure because we're in the bubble of our cognition, of our story that our thoughts, mental images can construct. You know how it is like when we are in a dream and then we wake up, or we're lost, really lost in thought-obsessing, and then we come to, right? There, it really is. That's why we use that term a lot in Buddhist practice of awakening, where we sometimes, often, even describe the whole path, like when we refer to the Buddhist teachings and practices, we talk about it as a path of awakening. So we're awakening from patterns of distraction being, in a sense, spellbound by our thoughts about things, by our own mental constructions. So we're living our life, but in a way, what the mind is mostly attending to is are the thoughts of me living my life. And the way that Joko Beck describes this, it's kind of poignant and disturbing. She was... A, a well known and very much loved uh, Zen Buddhist teacher in San Diego died maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, something like that. Charlotte Beck. She has a couple wonderful books, by the way. And uh, in one of her books, she describes it as you have this perfectly fine house with nice big windows and a couple doors and airy, and it's just great. But because of our habits, Right? our habits of constructing stories and being spellbound by them, it's as if we build another house right over the house we have. So we're still in the original house, and now we got a second house around the initial house, and the house we're in starts to become feel a little bit oppressive and dank and dark and stagnant, maybe, right? And that's the thing about we have... We are exposed to so much. We feel so much as human beings. Right? It's a, now a thing in Western psychology about people saying they're too sensitive. They feel so much, almost empathic, right? But it's, the problem isn't being too sensitive. The problem is not knowing what to do with the sensitivity, with the exposure. So that's why the economy runs, uh, operate so much around distraction is because collectively we don't really know what to do with sensitivity and that's where wisdom comes in. You know, the wisdom that Buddhist practice cultivates or develops is the kind of wisdom that doesn't have a problem with profound sensitivity. So if somebody asks you, you don't even need to use Buddhist terms, you know, somebody asks you, like, "What's all that meditation stuff you're doing? Why are you doing it? What do you get from it?" Right? Which would be a very appropriate question questions for a friend to ask us, and we could say, "Well, I find <laughs> being human, I'm really sensitive. I feel a lot. I see a lot internally, externally in our world, and I want to realize how to be at ease." I don't want not to be intimate. I want to be intimate with everything that I'm exposed to, that I'm feeling, that I'm sensing. I don't want to have to close down in any way, but I don't know how to do that. So I'm practicing being open. I'm practicing embracing, finding like what allows for this sensitivity without that reflexive demand for distraction or separation, what allows me to be fully human, which is another way of saying fully sensitive. I was reading uh, Ramesh Sairam, who, by the way, will be teaching next Sunday for me. I'll be teaching on the East Coast for uh, nine days or so. And Ramesh is one of our longtime teachers. And uh, he, he uh, gave me this book. I think it's titled Behave that's right but I can't remember now he's a well-known scientist um behavioral scientist and and studies evolutionary sort of how how behavior develops through the evolutionary process and one of the things he says about us humans you know just in terms of sensitivity is that we've evolved because I mean even though we have had some version of civilization what we call civilization for maybe 10,000 years or so For so much longer, I mean, that's just a little blip in our evolutionary process. For so many, I think millions of years, but a long time, creatures like us have been in these small groups and dependent on these small groups to survive, right? I don't know, 10 to maybe 100 at the most. And uh, one of the reasons that those groups can work together somewhat effectively is that we could read each other, right? We could empathetically sense what's going on with the other person. And we could, uh, this scientist argued, there are a lot of mechanisms that allowed us to read each other, like our emotions are somewhat transparent, like even the different ways we blush or flinch or tense up, right? People who are close to us know When something's up, don't they? If we have a good friend. Because we were built to be transparent for each other. Because that's how we know we can trust each other. Because if you were uh, doing something against me, I'd probably sense it. If we know each other well. And so when we're with each other, it's sort of like a, a way of being all in. Because I can't fool you anyway. So we have to be on the same page together. Of course, that changes with the way we operate with the larger groups and such. But it's just a point about that degree of sensitivity that we come in with. And uh, the alternative, when we look at it honestly, the alternative doesn't make sense. I think it was... uh, Tony Packer, a wonderful teacher who's also passed, started out in the Zen tradition but felt a little bit constrained by the just the structures of any system, probably. So later in life, as she became a better known teacher, which has talked uh, describe herself as an awareness teacher or something like that. She had a center called Springwater in Northern New York State. I think it's still operating, and she has a couple of good books too, by the way. But one of the lines I really liked from Tony Packer is that nobody consciously chooses to be numb. But we all unconsciously have patterns of numbness in different places in our lives, right? Hopefully, we're, you know, the more we practice, the more we sense those places where we go on autopilot. And we're just not really there. Like for some of us, when you're in the bathroom, you're not really there. How else do public bathrooms get so dirty? <laughs> right? It's like, people are oblivious to the context. So it's really the breadth of awareness, like other people are gonna use the space, right? So, and just like, I don't wanna walk into mess, they don't wanna walk into mess, so maybe I'll clean up after myself. <laughs> I I knew a spiritual teacher and he was being interviewed and, uh, he, and he was asked something like, you know, how do what you teach your students, how, to, how does it change them? And he said, my students are the kind of people that leave public bathrooms cleaner than when they found them. <laughs> that's a nice answer to the question. But it's that, it's really that sensitivity. But that's just one example. I mean, there may be certain relationships with other people where you tend to go numb. You just depend on some pattern to get through the interaction because it's too difficult, painful, or at least you imagine it's too difficult, painful to be embodied, to be sensitive, to be really there in the living dynamic of that interaction. And there's many, many places where we tend to be disconnected, numb, on autopilot, and it's really good for us to know these places, so we can begin on our own, nobody making us do it, experimenting with well, what would it like be like to be fully embodied, and more and more sensitive, more awake, more curious, less armored and defended, more exposed, even you know using provocative terms, more raw, and again. Not forcing ourselves. Because some places in your life you might need to do the opposite, like either avoid the situation or learn skillful ways of armoring yourself, protecting yourself, right? The most obvious would be don't interact there or avoid that place if that is possible in your life. Sometimes it's not possible. So we have this sensitivity and uh, what the Buddha offers up then is this uh, practice of awareness and you know we wonder like why do we go to a quiet space like this room or some corner of your apartment your home to sit where it's relatively quiet and the dog knows to leave us alone and the cell phone is all the way off well Yet we're learning how to be open in an environment where we're increasing the odds that we'll find it safe to be wide open and sensitive. Aware of the six sensitivities, the activity of the mind and what we can be sensitive in the mind, like emotions, thoughts, mental images, perceptions, sounds, sights, tastes, touches, and smells. So these things are just moving, moving, moving like rivers. We're constantly inundated by what in Buddhism we call sense contact through the six senses. The Buddha calls these six senses provocatively the all. This is it. There is no more, never has been anything more to what you've experienced than contact through these six sensitivities and that's more profound than you might initially recognize that our whole world of experience my entire experience as a human being is our moments of being sensitive through these six sense gates seeing smelling tasting touching hearing maybe? <laughs> and being aware of mental activity. Just like right now, this this just gives us a flavor of how transforming a simple moment of being aware. Right now, this experience is very rich and complex moment of experiencing because we're feeling our body. There's probably some emotional tone we're all feeling. Of course, different, each of us, but And then that sort of blending of seeing and hearing and the feeling of our body sitting and the pleasantness of the body and the unpleasantness of those sensations in our body, all the more gross sensations in the body, all the more energetic, vibrational sensations, subtle sensations in the body, right? This is the complexity, the diversity of what's being sensed right now and even if I'm paying attention to something like what I'm saying, in my case, or what you hear me say in your case, we, we don't have to shut off the, the vastness, the complexity of everything else we're sensing, right? It's all right here. And, and when we, in Buddhist terms, when we say it's all right here, or it's being known here and now, we mean by that the mind, that's what we mean by the mind, or sometimes we use, use the word the heart, chitta is the Pali word. All that is here and now being known, here and now. And where does knowing the knowing of this moment happen? We're not knowing the sight we're seeing that we would say out there, like if I look out the windows, that seeing is happening here and now in the mind, isn't it? And if I have a thought about the past that's being known here and now in the mind, if you're really bugging me, like your body language is bugging me, that being bugged, being irritated, is something that's being known in the mind. That's That's what we mean by the mind. That's the place where things are being known. Right? And our whole life in this moment is just a moment... Of experience being known. Our whole life has been a moment, have been a succession of moments of mind. We're knowing the mind because it's the mind that's knowing. So you see, when we talk about awareness, it's a profound shift from our chronic, uh, you know, being uh, fixated on or deluded by our story to something that's much more simple but different than we imagine, it, than the kind of uh, appearance of things, which is, this is being known in the mind, this is being felt in the mind. Somebody is, we're really uh, enchanted by somebody, just want to get to know them, find them so interesting. And we might even build scenarios like, oh, this person could be my best friend, you know, whatever. But all that are just mental images and emotions and thoughts being known in the mind. But it feels But even that sense of it being real, that sense of it being real is something being known in the mind. And when we learn to keep this in mind because that's what it means to be aware or realizing uh, that this is something being known and it it profoundly shifts the mind's relationship to sense experience and just in a simple way we could say that my relationship to sense experience is often one of attachment and one of dependence i'm dependent on my sense experience, I want my sense experience to deliver something for me, happiness, and if it's not delivering happiness, I usually ignore it, or if I think it's delivering unhappiness, I try hard to get rid of it, to make the the sense experience different than what it is. So if I'm feeling knee pain, well that's not delivering happiness, so either I try to ignore it, or I try to, you know, stretch my leg out to relieve the painful sensations because it was in the way I was expecting. I'm expecting my bodily experience to be delivering some comfort or at least not to be torturous for me, not to be a cause for my suffering. But there's a real dispassionate flavor when we realize that all of that normal, ordinary self-centered drama about my knee pain it's just something being known in the mind. Now, the key is you have to check this out. Because when I say what I just said, you know, it doesn't, well, that doesn't make my knee pain go- What you just said, Mark, there's still knee pain, or there's still, you know, poverty, and that bugs me because I've got enough resources I could do something for at least one person, but I'm not, so, you know... We close off from the problems of the world because we don't know what to do with the discomfort we feel when we sense the injustice. We sense just the limitations of how we treat each other. You know, just no end to ways, the ways we cause each other misery, consciously and unconsciously. So we have a lot of seeming reasons to be disconnected. But what really helps is that sense, because there's that sense of equanimity. And, And because I'm no longer afflicted by the imperfections of my mind, the imperfections of my personality, and the imperfections of our world, I'm much more creative and nimble in how I participate. A lot of times we think that in order to make an intervention like in some ways our yard needs some intervention. So just something a little less controversial. But you could think about this in terms of racism or economic injustice or wars and other sort of oppressive systems that we're all part of in our world, in our communities, in our families too, of course. And uh, we could feel like it needs an intervention. And then often that, like, okay, I'm going to, Destroy those weeds because they don't belong in that part of the garden. And it often comes from aversion or greed. Oh, it will be so nice when that hedge looks even or when that garden looks weeded or whatever the plants are watered. But it's, you see, it's, it's in terms of this story. We're in the story of there's a me who's dependent on my sense experience. And right now my sense experience is bothering me seeing the garden as it is. But if I fix it, then the garden's gonna give me what I need, which is the sense of it being okay. So then I'm okay, because I'm attached, identified with how the garden is. Same thing with different ways that we're an activist. So I'm not saying we're not going to do that. We're going to get involved in our families and our world and with our gardens with greed and aversion because that's the big habit. But the Buddha invites us to take a look. How's that working for us? <laughs> you know, when that's what drives our activism, whether in terms of our taking care of our homes, our gardens, taking care of our communities, our wider world, how does that work? What does that set in motion Does it lead to my own and others' well-being? And there's something like, well, what's missing is this freedom. I mean, interestingly, we're much better at helping ourselves and others when we don't feel attached or dependent. But because it's the attachment and dependence that separates us. And when we're not attached, independent, then we can actually be right in the middle. You know, we can actually be in the garden. We're actually there when we're there. Or when we're involved in some social change, political change, movement. You know, we can actually be there. We can... We're embracing our sensitivity. We're feeling what's moving. We don't have an agenda. Our agenda is to be intimate and to let the response come out of the intimacy. When we're sure of what we should do or sure of what should happen, we're probably, it's almost like uh, alarm bells that go off. Anytime we have any flavor of arrogant certainty, right, we should have some alarm bells going off because we've replaced being present with some story that involves a me who's certain about what should happen or what shouldn't happen. And we haven't learned how to operate in that more ambiguous or that more open way, less fixed way, more loving, more curious, and more energized, right? Because we're not uh, squeezing the life juice out of us by our certainty, you know? So we're connected, we feel enlivened by that absence of boundaries, that absence of certainty. Surprisingly, you get this in moments in in your meditation practice, especially you've been practicing for a while, when the mind drops a lot of its chronic ways of creating boundaries of separation, you might just find that you're sitting there, you know, just whether you're with the breath or with your experience in a more open, inclusive way, either way this can happen. You just feel like there's so much energy. And in your body, actually, even on this more gross physical level, can reflect that energy. You just find that, you know, even if you really have an old body or a body that has a lot of physical injuries, you just find a kind of upliftment in your posture, a brightness in your mind, heart, body, like you can do what needs to be done in your circumstances. Not that you're superhuman, but that in your particular context of your life, your age, your relationships, you feel enlivened and nimble in how you're gonna respond, precisely because you don't have a map you're imposing doesn't mean you don't have ideas, but there's no fixedness. That's what makes it... This is why, you know, we're all spellbound when we watch children play. I mean, not always, because sometimes when children are playing, they're hateful with each other. (laughs) You know, you knock down my power of (laughs) blocks. But uh, sometimes there's the sense of play, but it's precisely because it's not fixed. You know the way. It's just—it's just a natural process that's unfolding when you watch. Sometimes a child, or even a wild animal. Sometimes mm-hmm. not always, um, but we can live that way actually. Except the difference is there is this reflective awareness. Right, that's the learning piece. That's the sensing of what's in the direction. Of healing what's in the direction of freedom and what's in the direction of contraction and heaviness not healing it can seem like it would be oppressive for me to be constantly concerned is this for my well-being and the well-being of others like the Buddha said to his son you know before you Think something, say something, or do something, you should be reflecting. Is this for my well-being or the well-being of others? Why you're thinking something, saying something, or doing something, you should be reflecting. Is this for my well-being and the well-being of others or not? After you've thought something, said something, done something, you should be reflecting. Doesn't that sound oppressive? Yes. Yeah, it sounds really oppressive. Because we don't know what awareness is, we think I have to do that as opposed to we're uncovering a natural capacity of being reflective. When there is that awareness, there is that natural discernment of whether this is for my well-being or the well-being of others. There is that natural sensitivity, that natural capacity, we call it comprehension, like Wisdom and awareness will naturally comprehend what this is setting in motion, whether it's skillful or not. It's not cognitive. It's not like we gotta, from my little place, like, is this skillful or not? You know, as a moral agent, is this, <laughs> what is a setting in motion? I'm not saying that that kind of cognitive reflection is not always helpful or can't be helpful at times. But I'm saying there's something more natural and trustworthy. But it takes some time to learn to trust it. Because we're learning, we're going from being this independent agent, moral agent, who's figuring out my life, to learning how nature can take care of nature's business. That means this personality, you know, I know we know it intellectually, but we need to really get that this personality is also nature. And when we, when we cultivate in this personality that reflectiveness, this personality becomes pretty powerful. Just in this very ordinary way of using sensitivity, natural sensitivity, to understand, is this for my well-being and the well-being of others or not? It's just building that in, that natural capacity in, by keeping it in mind. So as you go about your day-to-day, just notice, check it out, like when I'm just aware, I'm not trying to be a skillful human being, I'm just taking advantage of the sensitivity which allows for the discernment of what this is setting in motion, helpful or not helpful, liberating or contracting, right? And I'm just moving naturally like a river, my life, your life, all of our lives, they're like rivers. They're natural processes. It's actually not correct to think, I got to do Sunday, and then I got to do Monday, and then I got to do Tuesday. God, when is it going to be over? Because that, one version or another, that's how we think. And it is oppressive. I find it oppressive. I'm sure a lot of you do. But that's actually not what's happening. Just like, the weather doesn't think, okay, now it's like, then you've got to get over here because, you know, it's supposed to be like checking out the map, you know, it's like, Monday is hot, Tuesday is cool. It's not a burden. Nature doesn't find anything burdensome. Only those aspects of nature that construct meaning and then get spellbound by the meaning it constructs, does that experience of being burden arise. And that can be abandoned. And the way that the process of that abandonment is the aligning with awareness, this natural capacity to be aware. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.